All Falling Fates is a personal memoir of growing up in the coming of age in the 1950s and 60s. Much of it describes the speaker's boyhood and adolescence in Richmond during those two decades and what life was like, both good and bad. His own view is that the 1960s inflicted enormous damage on America, damage that helps to explain the terribly torn and fractured country that we have in many ways today. J. Harvey Wilkinson III is a distinguished federal judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Uh, President Reagan uh, appointed him to that court in August of 1984, and he was the Fourth Circuit's chief judge from 1996 to 2003. Jay is the author of several books, including Harry Bird and the Changing Face of Virginia Politics, 1945 to 1966, One Nation Indivisible, How Ethnic Separatism Threatens America, Cosmic Constitutional Theory, Why Americans Are Losing Their Inalienable Right to Self-Governance, and most recently, in what will be the focus of today's presentation, All Falling Fates, Reflections on the Promise and Failure of the 1960s. Judge Wilkinson is also of great fame for a little-known honor bestowed on him very early in his life, which I'll share with you with the help of our partners at the archives of the Richmond Times-Dispatch, our VHS crack research team, and with great risk to my own very new job. Here we have, <laughs> recognized in his very best Western gear, seven-year-old and star-struck Jay, who is featured in the local paper with Gene Autry, who was performing here at the mosque in 1952. Please forgive me. <laughs> now, on a serious note, I would really, truly like to thank Judge Wilkinson for being such a dear friend of the Virginia Historical Society, which has become very clear to me very early on. He currently serves, as I mentioned, on our board of trustees and is one of our most valuable members. And he has provided an absolutely gracious warm welcome to me as I've joined this family. So thank you, sir. Please all join me in welcoming the Honorable J. Harvey Wilkinson. Thank you, Jamie. It's such a pleasure to uh, be here. Um, but um, that picture that was just uh, <laughs> flashed, <laughs> flashed up. The last time I checked, uh, that was not a judicial pose. <laughs> but there's a lesson to be drawn. Um, if you want to meet somebody famous, just dress up in your best cowboy outfit. <laughs> Jamie, thank you for that warm introduction. Um, I can't say enough good about Jamie and the great start uh, that he's off to. I, I, I think I speak for so many people in trying to convey to you the excitement that we feel about Jamie's arrival. Uh, VHS couldn't be in a better place, and uh, our anticipation of the future is uh, unbounded. And I can tell you this, uh, he's off to a wonderful start. So thank you, Jamie. Um, I wrote this book about the 1960s, and I, I, ne I didn't expect really to um, write it, or it was just, I had it written on the sideboard. And then I saw that something that I had expected to put in the rearview mirror 
I never expected to live it all again. And I didn't really think it would come back. Um, but in these last two years, um, I've experienced something of a, a, a flashback. And many of the problems and difficulties that I went through and that society went through in the 1960s um, have come to return. And as a personal matter, I really don't want our country to go through this again. I don't want upcoming generations to have a repetition of our experience. And I worry now that these 1960s tensions will persist as long as our beautiful country claims nationhood. And I wonder how much of this recurring rancor even the finest nation can sustain. In this memoir, I have tried not to shout. There's been too much shouting about the 1960s already. Uh, we need to have a conversation about them, um, and not what we've had in the past, which has been sending everybody to the barricades. Um, so I've decided on a memoir, uh, and I've tried to make it as personal and warm and intimate as I possibly can. Uh, whether you agree with it or disagree with it, I hope it's honest. Um, memoirs are difficult things to write. Uh, you're going to smile sometimes, you're going to cry sometimes, and you're going to smile through tears. Um, I had a personal reason for writing the memoir, and that was it occurred to me that I really knew all too little about my grandparents. And I knew nothing at all about my great-grandparents. And so that really made me feel as if I were missing something valuable and important. And I decided I don't want my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren not to have the slightest idea um, of what life was like for my mother and father and for Lassie and myself, uh, and for the generations that preceded us. Because my parents and my grandparents are responsible for my being on this earth. And sometimes when you look back at those generations, you see what a, um, it, it, just how, what a fortuitous link of circumstances it is that each of us could, could be here. Um, I mean, if anything had, had happened the slightest bit differently, none of us in this room would be here. So it just behooves us to learn about the people who are responsible for the fact that we're sitting here right now. Sometimes when you see these names and dates in a family tree in a book, um, you, you see the name and then you see the dates, but they're real people. And uh, I, I wanted to, to uh, to hand down to my children and grandchildren something more than a name and a date of birth and a date of death. Um, so that's a big motivation for me. I recognize much good in the 60s, but I do think the 1960s inflicted some very serious damage upon our country. 
Um, I think there was enormous harm done to the spirit of tolerance in higher education. I think there was damage done to the stability of the family unit, um, to our respect for the rule of law, to our sense of America's home, to our capacity to unite as one nation, even in times of crisis, and to our need for the sustenance of faith. And all of these things were damaged. And I hope to, to, to show through a personal story um, the full extent of it. You can't write about the 1960s without also writing a little bit about the 1950s. Um, and maybe historians will understand uh, how unfortunate in one sense it was that the 1950s and the 1960s were just jammed together, uh, cheek to cheek, in our history. And wouldn't it have been nicer maybe if we could have had a reprieve um, and had the 1970s in between <laughs> the 1950s and 60s? But it didn't work out that way. And unfortunately, you, you have to count from five to six. Um, I learned that early. Um, I want to, uh, each of the chapters in the book takes up a different value that I think was damaged by the 1960s. Um, and I wanted to uh, begin by talking a little bit about the relationship of men and women. And um, I thought I would read to you just a, a brief bit about my father. So, Many of you probably experienced the same thing. Father crouched on the outermost edge of his chair, one hand on his knee, the other with forefinger wagging. His voice grave, his short frame thrust forward. The whole body, his whole body coiled for emphasis. Never, he said, shoot, shooting me the straightest stare I ever remember. Never let your father learn of your indulgence. Never let me learn even once that it has gotten the better of you. It, of course, was unmentionable. It was set to snare with social shame, bodily sores, and irons of force wedlock, those fool enough to venture near. It's a car with no brakes. Don't you ever start it up, son. Son was father's way of meaning business. Son impressed on my young brain the endless weight of family probity, it connoted consequences of unspeakable unpleasantness. The world might mellow, but not father, whose morality was like a spear, some ancient upright king flung to the ground and which struck and stood ever since, steadfast and unquivering. That was known back then as the talk. And the thing about my father, one of the probably most wonderful men I ever met in my life, he never needed to mention a subject but once. <laughs> he didn't raise his voice. He just needed to mention it once. And it was, from that moment on, unforgettable. Well, in old Richmond of the 1950s, we went to, and maybe some of you went to this, we went to a, a, a thing where we were first introduced to girls, and it was at Miss Don, Donham's Cotillion. 
And the cotillion was supposed to begin in the sixth grade. Mother and father felt that was dreadfully early, so they hold me out of the they, they pulled me back from the cotillion, told me I had to wait until the seventh grade. And so I went to this cotillion, and it was the this square or rectangular room. It was just unbelievably regular. And there was just so much light. It was the brightest light in this cotillion uh, that I ever remembered. Goodness gracious, gosh forbid that there was ever some muted light in which a, man, a boy and a girl could actually have a conversation. No, the light would find you out. And so we were doing these dances, and we got these little ribbons if we did the waltz or the foxtrot passively. I went back to Mother, and I said, Mother, there are more chaperones than dancers <laughs> <laughs> at Miss Donnan's cotillion. And somehow she didn't seem to mind. <laughs> well, for Miss Donnan's, um, many of us went to debutante parties, and uh, they were beautiful things with these lighted lanterns and these bubbly fountains and different color water and, and a band, and um, they were just decorated so, so beautifully. And um, I, I started thinking, you know, why is this beauty being wasted on me? And you have to understand, I'm a you know pimply-faced little teenager, and and my arms are growing uh, way past the sleeves of my tuxedo, um, and yet this beautiful party is being put on for me. I didn't really uh, I didn't really understand the expense uh, of of uh, having a daughter throwing a daughter's debutante party followed up by a beautiful wedding. Um, it's, it's quite something. Now, we could go on, and we, we could make fun of old Richmond. Um, it, in some ways, it's an easy target. Too easy. Um, because I think old Richmond, for all its stuffiness and stodginess, and it certainly was that, it understood something very valuable about life. And that was the importance of constancy and durability in human relations. People talk about the 1960s as being the advent of the great sexual revolution, probably something of an exaggeration, um, because the 60s surely didn't invent sex. But something changed dramatically in the relationships between men and women. and, and um, it's attributed to technology largely, the pill, um, which took fear, the fear out of pregnancy, and penicillin back in the day before the bacteria got smart. Um, now we have to have all sorts of very complicated um, antibiotics to fight bacteria, but back then it seemed as if it, penicillin was in its heyday. Um, it was a, a a, a wonder drug that would quickly knock out um, if anyone contacted uh, sexually transmitted disease. So that is the standard explanation 
for the sexual revolution of the 1960s. But I think there's another explanation, too, and that is the way we regarded our parents' generation. And we regarded our parents' generation as, above all, dull. Um, it, our, our parents were coming, and they spent their lives so much in the same city. They spent their lives so much in the same job and with the same company. Come to a city, get a job, move on up the ladder, and that was the way you spent your time. And we, we were looking down on this dullness, and part of the dullness, as you could understand from reading some of, some of the major books of that period, like Betty Friedan's um, The Feminine Mystique, part of the dullness was tied up in monogamy uh, and marriage, which was depicted as something that was simply a, a repetition of domestic chores um, day after day. And our parents' generation was looked upon as Victorian and Puritan. Um, Victorianism uh, imposed a set of strict external rules at the same time that Puritanism was um, uh, instilling a sense of internal guilt. And so the 60s said, really, we need to throw all this dullness and Victorianism and Puritanism off. Um, and it's going to be more of a do-your-own-thing, um, less structure, more gratification. And um, I don't want you to think of me as a school. There's nothing less attractive than, you know, a, someone who's a miscreant in his youth being a scold in his later years. I, I'm not a scold. All, all, all I want to say, I think, is that we went from being much too strict, um, and the 50s were much too strict in many, many ways, to much too fleeting and casual. And again, without being a scold, I just want to suggest that we are paying a price um, for the casualness and impermanence in the relationships sometimes between men and women. And when you uh, see phrases like friends with benefits and hooking up, you do get the feeling that personal relationships in terms of a meaningful one are being hollowed out. And the very unfortunate crisis of sexual assault that exists on many college campuses, it stems sometimes from misunderstandings born of casualness rather than courtship. And it's weakened family structures. Um, they're soaring out of wedlock bay, uh, births, and marriage has become much more a class-based phenomenon and much more of an upper-middle-class estate. And it's so sad sometimes when you read uh, the commentary on it and says um, it's not it's not a matter of how successful a child's father is, but whether he knew his father at all. So there were two very different decades. We traded some loneliness within marriage in the 1950s to more loneliness outside of it. And I don't understand it, and I guess this is one of the reasons I regard myself as a passionate moderate. You may think 
moderation is inconsistent with passion, but it's not. I don't understand why the pendulum in this country cannot stop somewhere in the middle. Well, let's switch to a different subject and some of the things with, with race relations. Um, when I was growing up, I didn't see, I, I didn't see the difficulties in, in the Upper South, and especially in the very privileged precincts in which I grew up. There wasn't much crude language the way there, there was deep, deeper South. It was, much, it was much softer and more nuanced. In fact, the, the cruelty of the segregated Upper South lay not in vengeful language, but in silence. And I thought that, it, and it was, it was a happy time in so many ways. And yet, as I grew older, I began to see some of these silent hurts that segregation imposed, particularly on, on um, the housemate who raised me, Birder. I, th I thought she was happy at the time, and, and, and maybe, but there were some things that happened that were never much discussed. It had to have been um, very hurtful. One of the things that was one of the silences um, took some of the silences took place around sports. Um, there was no southern team uh, in the major leagues back then, and so the, the people I knew, the adults I knew, were rooting for the. Um, Washington Senators or the, the St. Louis Cardinals or the Cincinnati Reds um, or maybe the Philadelphia Athletics. And um, my housemate, Berta, said she was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan, and I had this conversation with her, and I was sure that she was a Dodgers fan because the Dodgers uniforms were, were blue and white. They were quite beautiful. And then she would start talking about Jackie Robinson and Roy Campanella, and of course that's part of the reason, and why shouldn't it be, that she was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. And so I don't understand why there were so few Brooklyn Dodgers fans among adult Richmonders, white adult Richmonders. Um, and I think that it was just something one didn't do, that if, if you were a Brooklyn Dodgers fan back then, it, it might mark you in a way that was bad for business. So you didn't root for them. And then there was a situation with, with tennis. I was a member of the Country Club of Virginia, and those mother would play with me every so often, and those courts were so beautifully manicured. And I thought because they were, were rolled and watered twice a day at the country club, that of course they had to represent the very pinnacle of Richmond tennis because we had the nicest tennis courts. And when, uh, and I'm almost ashamed to say this now, but when I would drive by Bird Park and see those hard courts 
and think in my own mind about the courts, those nice, beautiful clay courts that I was playing on. And here, Bird, Bird Park, a lot of people were playing on these very hard courts with cracks in them, and sometimes it was grass growing in them. And I, I thought, well, they can't be as good tennis players as I am because their courts aren't as nice. And, you know, boy, was I wrong. And, and then later on, I come and, and I realize that in the very same town I'm in, um, Arthur Ashe is scaling the heights of national tennis. And, and I said, how could that be? Um, where was he playing? I didn't even know where he played, but right in the same town, he was going to become a national champion. You know, while I was struggling, if I was really lucky, to win the club championship in the 18 and unders. So, um, you know, he had he'd never come by at our little segregated enclave. And, um, you know, I, I really, I would love to be able to say to you today, I would love to be able to say it to you, that I actually hit a tennis ball hit a tennis ball, just one, just one, with the great Arthur Ashe. I could have bragged about it the rest of my life. Never hit a single ball, not one. Isn't that a commentary? And the people who knew Arthur Ashe said, you know, Jay, he could have helped you. He could have helped you. He could have helped you with your forehand, your backhand, your serve, your overhead, uh, <laughs> every bit of the game. And uh, from everything I knew about him, he, he was a generous person, and he would have spent some time with me. He would have helped me if we let him, if we let him. Another silence. We used to call white adults, as a young boy growing up, Mr. and Mrs. You'd say Mr. and Mrs. Williams. You would never, ever, if you didn't want to be sent to your room forever, address a white adult by his first name. But black adults? We always called by their first name only. That wasn't right. And I remember one day I, we had a laundry woman who did our laundry, lovely, lovely lady. Her name was Annie McRae. And so I went by one afternoon, and I was going out that evening, and I said, Annie, do you think my um, shirt will be ironed and pressed, ready for me this evening? And she said, Jay, why don't you call me Mrs. McRae? And you know how it is sometimes when you're so startled by a question, you just stammer for an answer? 
I didn't have an answer. Things like this. When I went to Yale, I had many Southern exiles, people who, for one reason or another, didn't like the South and its system. And it, it, the, you remember the, the famous uh, memoirist, Willie Morris, who wrote a book called North, Court, North Toward Home. And many of my professors in Yale were Southern exiles, and they had left in part because they just didn't like living with segregation. And after thinking about it, um, I wanted to return. I wanted to come back south. And I guess it's my view of home. As I say in the book, whatever else home is, at least it's you. So the south, with, with all of its flaws, was always going to be my home, and Virginia too. And I had no doubt. And I saw great good in the South, along with all the wrongs, such connectivity with people, a spirit of so much neighborliness, so much human warmth, a wonderful sense of belonging and tradition, people caring for other people, so you have a region here of great flaws and enormous strengths, enormous human strengths, which I wanted to be part of. I was coming home. Now, it gets back to what I was saying earlier, that we need a sense of balance. And I want to broaden the perspective from the South to our dear country the United States. So much of what I experienced at Yale was negative about America. That this country was an oppressive nation, and that it that the history of America was a history of oppression, and that the private sector was exploitative and what they were trying to do was ground down workers. Well, I had grown up with a father who was in the private sector. It was nothing like that. I kept hearing all this negativism about America and overlooked is a remarkable constitution which I'm sworn to uphold on the bench and the structure of government that established and Madison's genius in establishing separation of powers and those beautiful Bill of Rights that have done more to advance human freedom around the globe than any other thing. And our democracy, which has given us the glories of self-governance and our economic system and our capitalist system, which has given us the marvels of free enterprise why was it not presented at Yale in a balanced way, just like the South? The good and the bad. The South in balance, the nation in balance, 
And you can say what you want about America, and there is no question that slavery and segregation are stains on our history. But there is also so much good, so much good. And I don't ask you to accept America as a sainted nation, but don't think it's a sinning nation either. Whatever else you say about America, and I hope, I hope this is how history will regard us. We are a nation that's tried. We've made strides. We want to get it right. You don't reach human nature being what it is. You don't reach utopia. It's always distant. It's always a goal somewhere. But I don't know of any country anywhere that has had basic goodness of heart and that has made mistakes and stumbled along the way. But let history say about this country that it is a nation that tried, tried in the best sense, tried to do it right. Among the casualties trauma of the 1960s, which I also go into, is the Vietnam War. 58,000 of my contemporaries died in that war. And it was a war that I didn't think the case was ever made for it. I didn't think that at the time. I don't believe that now. I think it was a terrible mistake that strained the relationship between people and their government and that introduced a backlash of isolationism and did so many other things. But I can't get over the personal toll of 58,000 of my contemporaries dying. Now, I never went to Vietnam. And um, I tried to get out of going to Vietnam, something I didn't want to do. So I joined up with the Army Reserves because it was a safe option. And the reserves probably wouldn't be called up. I pursued a lawful course. I got an honorable discharge, but pursuing a lawful course and an honorable course is not the same thing as pursuing a courageous course. And to this day, I don't know if I am brave. As I say in the book, Perhaps it shouldn't matter. Perhaps bravery shouldn't matter in this very modern world, but it does matter, and I don't know. So I want to tell you a little story, a little story, about a friend of mine at the Lawrenceville School. And his name was Dick Pershing. Dick and I were on the soccer team together, okay? And we passed the ball around a lot. Uh, we, we 
we kicked the soccer ball. We, he gave me some passes. I gave him some passes. Um, you know how guys are. Um, boys bond over a ball. And so Dick and I bonded. Dick wasn't just anybody. He was the grandson of General John J. Pershing, who was the leader of the American Expeditionary Force in World War I. So if war came, there wasn't any doubt in, in our minds where Dick would be. And he went to Vietnam as a second lieutenant, and he died there. Do you want to know how he died? He died trying to recover the met remains of a missing member of his unit when he was shot to death by the Viet Cong in small arms fire. That's how he died. Now, when you next visit the Washington Mall, go by and see, I ask you to do this for me, see if you can find the name of Richard Pershing. Gonna ask you to do something more, something more. I want you to go by the graves in Arlington National Cemetery, it's right near the mall. Go, oh, please, by the graves of the Pershing family. And you'll find Dick Pershing's grave right there beside that of his grandfather. I think, as Jamie mentioned, that the damage inflicted by the 1960s helps to explain the terribly torn and fractured country that we have today. I don't have all the answers. If I said I did, you wouldn't believe me, and you'd be right not to. I think I can illuminate what the questions are, what values and things the country needs to recover, and I think I have some ideas about how we go about that because after 30 years, more than 30 years on the bench, I'm used to a thing, a decision-making process where we hear both sides of a question before we as judges ever hand down a decision. And when we, where we talk with our colleagues, even those who have very different views from us, before we kindly finally come down with a, with an order, and. Sometimes, when you go about things that way, you start out far apart, and guess what? You end up pretty close together. And uh, that suggestions for compromise emerge which weren't evident there at the beginning. So I know it can't be sort of transferred automatically to the political process for many reasons, but I like to think that the judicial process does suggest a way of going about making decisions that could be useful to this country today. 
I've been very critical of the 1960s, but I want to salute those who take a positive view of that decade, too. They have some strong points to make. And the long arc of American history has been one of embrace and inclusion. We must never forget such things, like the march from Selma to Montgomery and the march on Washington and the fact that those marches helped to bring about our great Civil Rights Acts, 1964 Civil Rights Act, 1965 Voting Rights Act. And so it's not all one way. The 1960s helped to make us a country for all Americans, not just some. So my hope in this little memoir is that each reader can come at the end to appreciate the other side of the 60s argument. And I hope that those who rend a garment may yet help to mend it. Life affords few do-overs, but our generation of the 60s has been given another chance. And seeing all that is bad around us should never extinguish our hope for all that can be good. So it remains our generational opportunity to help bring together in our later years the country that in our youth we did so much to drive apart. What greater gift could we now give America than helping to cool those still boiling antagonisms before our tumultuous generation leave Shakespeare's stage and life itself for good? That is my hope. This is my story. It is written out of love for America. Come with me on the journey. Thank you for coming here this afternoon. I love this organization. I love VHS. My family has been associated with it for many years. My dear friend Stuart Bryan got me involved, and I miss him terribly today. Many of you I know. Others, I hope, I will come to know. I'll just tell you this. One of the finest feelings on earth is to be among friends. Thank you. Moving, uh, a moving talk, Judge. Uh, you mentioned in the course of it technology, and could you uh, tell us a bit about how you think technology, and particularly television, you could see the attack dogs in Birmingham, for example, or the carnage in Vietnam. How did that play into this, creating this divisiveness? Hmm. Well, the, uh, I, I, I don't think technology needs to 
drive the destiny of our country. Um, you think of one technology replacing another. Um, when I was very early, a, a very young child, uh, the radio was about all we had. And then we got into, uh, into television. And um, I remember watching uh, Howdy Doody and the Mickey Mouse Club and some of those things. And there were a lot of people very worried if, for some reason that that the technology like the television was going to uh, make us a very different country. And then I think uh, there were, well, it happens every time there's a new system that's put into place. Uh, I'm sure you all have heard, as I have, about emails and how they're des destroying um, the ability of people to write letters uh, and to express themselves, and and um, and that may be true. And when the internet came on board, this was uh, advertised as something that would uh, replace actual reality and face-to-face -face contact uh, with virtual contact. Um, but you know, through all these stages of technology. Um, they have their effects, and there's no, there's no question about that. But I don't think that they need drive, um, that technology needs to drive our destiny as a nation, because it seems to me that that's to give ourselves over to a certain fatalism, which is that, oh, it's technology and we can't do anything about it. Um, I think we can do something about it, and I think that that good values and a, a good system of governance um, is 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 what matters most. And um, I, I don't want to give up on that um, aspect of it because I think there's a danger in letting technology be a convenient rationale um, and an excuse for not doing what we uh, what we really need um, what we what we really need to do and um, I'm just the kind of uh, what was it that Shakespeare said that the fault dear Brutus is not within not with our stars but in ourselves. And I think we need to look at ourselves. The machines don't run us. Henry David Thoreau said that long, long ago when the railroad came in and, and he, he went to Walden Pond to reflect. But the machines don't run us. It ought to be vice versa. Is this working? Um, I would like for you to address just a little bit the influence of money in our politics because it seems to be so huge. And when I look back at the election, there seemed to be 
enormous waste. And um, just related to that, I think it makes voters, the ordinary voters, feel disenfranchised in a way. And I would love to see exactly what you're talking about of people who, who lead citizens in a way to feel there is hope for what you want to see happen, a, a coming together and a more measured um, ability to listen to each other. And, you know, I would personally love to be on a panel of people from all walks of life and to be able to listen and understand those, those different sides. But I, I don't really know how to organize it. So I would be interested in what you say about that. Thank you. Well, um, we need to understand, as you do, that this is a very diverse country. We're becoming more diverse in terms of religious faith, in terms of race and ethnicity, um, in every conceivable way. And there's no way that America is going to make it unless we make it together, period. And you don't make it together by insulting someone's motives or their religious faith or their race or, the eth or their eth ethnicity. You make it together by sending in all of our public discourse a message of welcome and a message of inclusion and a message that everybody has something to contribute. Maybe it's not the same thing. Maybe one person is going to contribute in one way and maybe another person is going to contribute in another way. But this just being an American, just that common citizenship transcends whatever differences in race, ethnicity, faith, or political outlook, or ideology, we start, for, we start with being an American. And, you know, even that's become politicized. You say, well, it takes a village. That, that's supposed to represent some kind of ideological statement. Well, no, it doesn't. It's a very useful concept. That's what the South understood long ago before it was co-opted, that the South understood it took a village. It's one of the things I love about this country. But you don't, you just don't go after, you just don't go after people because of what faith they hold or what ethnic group they represent. And, and I've always found if you extend a hand to somebody, chances are that hand's going to come back. And it's amazing sometimes when you walk up to a counter and you see somebody behind a cash register and they've had a bad day, okay? And they're looking at you as if you're the last person they wanted to see on earth, and they're thinking, oh my gosh, another member of the public I've got to deal with. And 
my reaction to that is, you know, to break into a nice smile and and say, I'm sorry, I hope, I, I hope you haven't had a bad day. And, you know, suddenly the nature of the relationship is different. So why not apply this on a, on a, on a larger scale? Why not give people credit rather than casting blame? It's just a different way of going approach things, going about things that I think we need. And I, I want to thank you for your question because it's, uh, you obviously express the kind of hope that a lot of us have. And may one of these days that your hopes come to pass. Judge Wilkerson, uh, I'm 93 years old, so I have been part of the great generation later part of the pagan conservatives, and now I count myself as a deplorable, irredeemable deplorable. <laughs> what I'm astonished at in listening to you, and I came because I so much agree that what was introduced in the 60s had begun a series of negative negatives in our political process, in our culture, that we're still dealing with. But you did not mention the word communism at all, not once. When the communists bragged that they would debauch one generation of our youth and they wouldn't have to fire a shot, we would fall like overripe fruit into their laps. You don't mention that, whether it's in Vietnam, in World War II, or since. It comes right down to Sanders with his warmed over socialism and all our young people who have not been taught history. Now I've born and bred in Texas, but I've lived in Virginia for 50 years and I have watched Virginia work out a more perfect union when they want to try to take our monuments off of Monument Avenue and sweep our history under the rug. I want to say we've got other divided streets and we could claim that we had the first black governor, like him or not. We had Oliver Hill like him or not, all those sincere efforts to right the wrongs of a young Arthur Ashe. We've done that in Virginia. I don't think we have anything to apologize about. We have a lot to talk about and teach about. But you cannot leave out communism. And why did you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> You know, I, 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 um, I have the distinction of being the first woman in Virginia put in jail for preservation, and that's my judge. <laughs> but but I, I bear him no ill will because he commended me for my citizen's vigilance. He fined me $50, but he... He commended me for my citizen's vigilance, so that's nice. Right, you know, you know, um, you know, first of all, I want to thank you for your question. <laughs> and it was a whale of a question. And uh, I, I would say that I tell people that 
my, my parents left me so much and they left me excellent health, but one, one thing that they didn't leave me was a pair of good ears. Uh, they, were, they were both completely deaf by the end of their lives. And, but I've been able to use that to good effect. I said, um, <laughs> <laughs> the harder the questions get, the harder my hearing becomes. <laughs> Thank you about that. All, all I can say is that, you know, a, a memoir is a very personal story, and, and I wasn't trying to write the entire history of, of the world. I was trying to write a, a very, very personal story about values that I thought that, that we had lost. And um, um, it's always, any book is always a, a, a process of some selection. And perhaps a memoir, um, even more so. I will say something that um, I hope I touched on communism in a way because I remember very clearly when the Russians launched Sputnik, um, and it just put all of us. Uh, we thought we were the world's leaders in science, and when Sputnik was launched, it put all of us into a mode of terror, and. Um, <laughs> that I, th I thought uh, that uh, it, was, it was so afraid of nuclear warfare that we were all trying to construct what might pass for a fallout shelter. And in our own home, we had um, an interior uh, room. And I remember as a young boy, I'd, I'd take some canned goods and bring them down to that interior room without any windows and everything. Well, that, you know, what did I know? But that was my own little fallout shelter. Um, and I had those canned goods in there because they would keep. And, um, it, you know, so that, that there, was, there was that sense of alarm over Sputnik and there was a sense of terror over what nuclear war um, might entail and so that and, and I remember also to you know to go come back to some of the, the things I do touch on in the book that um, I remember as if it were yesterday the Cuban Missile Crisis when the ships were headed toward the Soviet ships were headed toward Cuba with their missiles and President Kennedy appeared on television and announced the naval blockade. Um, and um, the, um, I, I was at Lawrenceville at the time. I tried to call home desperately because you know, if we were all going to be blown to smithereens, I wanted to talk with my mother and father before it happened. Um, so. What, what I did was I couldn't reach them because the circuits were all so knotted and busy. So I went down, I was editor of the school newspaper, and I went down to the school newspaper and wrote an editorial, which I do mention in the book, about the importance of not being frightened by these foreign threats. And the same thing holds true with terrorism today and 9-11. You can't. You just can't have it um, 
rule, rule your life. And I remember the next day when the editorial came out, the headmaster went up and said, um, this was an example of extraordinary, extraordinary bravery, and he complimented me and everything. It wasn't brave at all. Um, I would have much preferred to have been talking to my parents and writing an editorial. <laughs> I, can, I can promise you. Um, and I, and I, was, I was scared to death. But I don't want you to think I was soft on communism. I don't need a microphone. Everybody can hear me. Uh, I've got a question, not so much about the book, but about one of the subjects that you raised in your book, and that is racism. Uh, I'm wondering what your thoughts are now with regard to racism, I have the I have the worst feeling that we're going about this uh, in the wrong way, and we're going in the wrong direction now with uh, Black Lives Matter and various white groups. And it just appears to me that we've stalled, or or worse, going in reverse as far as uh, race relations, which we so much want to cure, not only down here in the segregated South but also up in the segregated area where Yale and Lawrenceville were. If you could uh, comment on that, I would appreciate it. Well, I mean, uh, I simply think it's a matter of, uh, and it's, it's probably the most complicated question that there is. And um, I think that, uh, um, too many of these, um, when, I, when I was in the, when I was in the army, um, so many of the, uh, um, African-American soldiers and the white soldiers, we'd be in mess and we'd eat, um, separately and apart. Um, and sometimes, um, I noticed that today, and I don't think, I think the answer lies in a dialogue, and I think very often on campus uh, you have particular societies which are organized around the idea of race, and I hope that, that you know, that's fine, uh, but I hope it doesn't build walls um, around one another. Um, it's, it's so hard because you, you had back in the 1960s, um, and I think this may have led to your question, uh, the terrible, um, events in Birmingham where hoses um, were shot at protesting blacks. And you had uh, many, of the, many of the cities in the country in 1964 and 1965 um, go up in flames, Harlem, Detroit, uh, Rochester, um, Watts, um, you had 
what was probably the most one of the most frightening events of the decade when Martin Luther King was shot. And I think what was so awful about those assassinations um, was that the assassinations of the 1960s extinguished those who had great hope for our country. And you can agree with Robert Kennedy and John Kennedy and Martin Luther King, but you can agree or disagree. But one of the things all three of them had in common was that they had hope for America and hope that we would be able um, to, uh, to work these uh, problems out. Now, it's, uh, it's, it's tempting to see um, when you look at the race riots in Baltimore and Ferguson and um, when you look at some of the police shootings uh, at individual African-Americans, some of which are in self-defense, but others are, are absolutely not. They're not, they're not justified. Um, it's, it's tempting to think that things are getting worse. The way I would put it is not everything has changed, but not everything is the, is the, uh, is the same um, either. And in one sense, when I, when I think back on the 1960s, and some of this was racially motivated and others not, but we had those horrible events in Birmingham, as I've mentioned, um, and then the police storming the uh, uh, Democratic Convention in Chicago, um, and the um, um, police raid on, on Stonewall, and then the uh, shootings at Kent State. Um, those were examples of entire police departments just careening at, completely out of control. Um, and uh, their individual acts, which are not justifiable today, but I'm not sure we have the phenomenon that we observed in the 1960s, which rubbed race relations so raw about an entire police department going completely berserk. I don't think we've, I don't think we've had that yet. Um, and I take, I take some, um, I take, I take some hope in that. Um, it's, this is something that's going to take. Um, a lot of time, I try to persuade my African-American friends um, to be careful with accusations of racism um, because when you, when you accuse people of racism without a basis, it drives them apart and it, it makes them more reluctant to, to extend um, a hand, um, and uh, it it makes it makes individuals defensive, and it and it what we do is we lose sight of those really serious. If we if we if we unleash casual accusations, it, we lose sight of the very serious um, instances of uh, racial discrimination and racism that unfortunately still exist. So I, th I think 
that it requires really a measure of restraint in terms of accusation and a, a measure of reaching out because it's, it's so much easier, you know, initially to just have a conversation with people who think the way we do and you, you don't have to make much of an effort and it will, it's, it's easier and it's, it's more relaxed. But if you give it a chance, it can work. I'm, I have four African-American colleagues um, who serve with me on the court. And I can tell you that I've worked hard at those personal relationships and they're rewarding in ways that you absolutely wouldn't believe. But it, it, it takes an effort to uh, move out of the circles in which all of us, myself included, may feel more comfortable. But it's going to take years and decades. It's never going to be perfect. But, um, you know, I'm, I guess I would like to end this on saying just, you know, I'm a great believer in hope. And um, as I mentioned earlier, the hope that I have, or the, the, the thing that made the 1960s such a devastating decade was that the people who were assassinated there were figures of great hope and faith in this country. And that's, that hope was extinguished there. And my two favorite presidents in the United States in the, 19, in the 20th century were Franklin Roosevelt and Ronald Reagan. Very different people, but they were both believers in America, and they both um, offered this nation hope. And so I hope that, um, and one of the reasons I'm so proud of Ronald Reagan and the person that united me, that nominated me, is that wonderful reference he used to make of America as a city on the hill. A lot of people who were sophisticated snickered at him and just thought, oh, you know, grade B actor, cowboy, city of a hill. But, well, no, we are. We're, we're a city on a hill. And uh, if one thing I will never, ever give up is, um, is hope for this beautiful land. Uh, thank you again for coming.